Brothers and sisters, this morning we are returning back to the book of Romans, the ninth chapter. And this morning we'll be closing out the ninth chapter at verse 30 and moving into chapter 10 up to verse 4. Now, as I preached this message, after I preached this message at 8, more than a few people came up to me and said, man, that was a really good sermon. And then they became very specific. They said, that was the shortest sermon you've ever preached. (laughs) So then, brothers, this is God's holy and inerrant word. So let us give careful attention to it. Verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Again, Father, we ask that you would bless the preaching and the hearing of your word. For it is in your son's name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, there is a saying, experience is the best teacher. It can also be said that when one sits under the tutelage of the best or a great teacher, there is a very high probability that one will indeed become a great teacher. Well, in the case of the Apostle Paul, the the writer of this passage, here is the man who in his own words described himself this way. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In Acts 22, verses 3 through 5, similarly, but With some more detail, while speaking to his Jewish compatriots, he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way. That is what Christians or Christianity was called prior to when they were called Christians in Antioch. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished." Now, if you had asked Paul at this time if he was going to heaven when he died, 
He would have looked at you like you were crazy. He might have said, do you not know that the very oracles of God, the word of God, were given to me and my people? That fact is so clear that even the leaders of what you call the way have had to acknowledge it when they spoke of the interaction between a Samaritan woman and the one you falsely call, claim to have shown rather, the way. While at the well, she asked whether her people were right for worshiping on the mountain or were my people right for worshiping in the temple. The answer he gave her, as you well know, was that it was right for my people, the Jews. They were right because they were the ones that were given the oracles, the very word of God. Those were the words of your own cult leader, the one you call Jesus. Do you not know that it was my people, it was my people who met God on Mount Sinai after preparing ourselves to do so? And do you know how he, that is God, responded? He responded by giving us, my people, the law by which we were to live by. And not just us, but it was the law, that is the Ten Commandments, by which all humanity was supposed to live by. He gave it to us. It is only my people of whom it can be said their leader met God face to face and was directly instructed by him in that very space. We, Paul would have said, were given what we needed to make things right, to gain favor with God, to earn our way into his presence. Beloved, hearing these things, one would have come to, would have had to sort of admit that this zealous fellow Paul, that his argument was somewhat persuasive, that he had a good point. But then, by God's grace, these words that are found in Proverbs 18, 17 would have come to mind. It says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. And so it was that the chief examiner himself, Jesus, met this man on the road to Damascus and, and brought to light his plight when he said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Then Saul answered, Saul who became Paul answered, who are you, Lord? He didn't even know the Lord. Who are you, Lord? To which Jesus responded, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And there, brothers and sisters, it came to light that this man who was so full of zeal, so on fire for God, was completely misguided in his thinking. It was then that, the, that he probably realized that there was nothing within him that would have caused him to come to that realization. But it was the grace of God, just as it was the grace of God with us. It was the grace of God that grabbed hold of him and revealed the fact that it wasn't about following the law. But it was about exercising faith in the lawgiver and being in a relationship with him, knowing him. And so subsequent to that event, he was sent on a mission to preach Christ to the Gentiles. 
And lo and behold, he consistently saw and marveled at a reality that he could have never previously conceived of. The Gentiles were being saved just like he was, by faith, not by works, by entering into a relationship with the risen Christ, not by observing a list of do's and don'ts. And so hearing all this, I ask you in God's providence, who better to have written our passage than the man I just described? Who would have had a heart and mind wrought out of the same exact cloth as the audience that he was addressing? Who would have had the empathy born out of a deep understanding of his own experience and depravity? Now it's often said that people don't want to hear what you have to say until they know that you care. They don't want to to know about what you've seen until they know you have a genuine concern for them. Well, in Paul's case, it's easy to believe that the folks around him and those who received this letter knew he cared and thus were open to his concerns. And what were those concerns, you ask me? Well, as usual, I'm glad you ask. I'd like to briefly look at four of those concerns here in our text. First, they had chosen, he was concerned that they had chosen the wrong path to redemption. Secondly, he was concerned that they had rejected the right path to redemption. Third, he was concerned that they had failed in their understanding of who God revealed himself to be, holy, infinite in his being, thus wholly inapproachable. And fourthly, they had failed in their understanding of the purpose of the law. So first, they had chosen the wrong path to redemption. In verses 30 through 32, Paul again through his own experience recognized what seemed to be a most unseemly dynamic. Gentiles were being saved, even though they weren't seeking to be. The gospel through the vehicle of preaching was invading their spaces. And as they heard it, they were miraculously coming to faith. Whoremongers, liars, thieves, idolaters, you name it. You name any kind of depravity. They were coming to faith in the midst of going about being all they knew to be. They knew nothing about God, nothing about Christ. In the midst of all this, they were being saved rescued, delivered, set free by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. On the other hand, the Jews who were indeed, they were indeed given the oracles of God and who were according to Paul in pursuit of the same were not able to obtain what they were striving for. On the surface, it doesn't seem like that should have been the case. Paul, however, doesn't waste time telling us why. The Gentiles were receiving the gift of God by faith while the Jews were trying to achieve that same gift by doing stuff, by signing off on their I did and I will list. They, in essence, had gotten to the point 
where they were really weren't seeking or interested in a reconciled relationship with God in accordance with who he had revealed himself to be to them. If you want to be reconciled to God, it has to be according to who he has revealed himself to be, not a made-up God in our own minds. Instead, they were going about gaining or trying to gain merits and doing it so that they could get what God had to give, not the giver himself. Here, I think it's important for us to know that when Paul speaks of righteousness in these verses, He's speaking of having a right standing before God. The Gentiles had no inkling of striving for any such thing. And thus it was by God's grace alone and his provision, our Lord, that they were being saved. The Jews, on the other hand, were so intent on staying on the path of redemption that they themselves had forged that it gave rise to Paul's second concern in our text. They rejected the right path to redemption. Here Paul might have told you, I was so engrossed in observing the law that I became a prisoner of my own presuppositions and the traditions of the echo chamber that I existed in. So much so that when I read the book of Isaiah, for instance, I completely misunderstood or ignored or glossed over the chapters which spoke of a child on whose shoulder the government would be, or the chapters that spoke of a suffering servant, or a child named Emmanuel, God with us. I was so self-insulated against that which was revealed for my benefit that I completely missed the fact that I was accounted as one who was stumbling over the stumbling stone, that is Christ Jesus himself. And so now, being very aware of that dynamic, he recounts what the prophet wrote as a concern for his countrymen, but hope for the remnant. The prophet writes, you heard it in this morning, in Isaiah 8 rather, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so it is that who believe, whoever believes in Jesus will not come to ruin. Those who place their trust in him, they will have a sure foundation on which to build. But for those who reject him and try to forge their own way for whatever reason, he is the stone that they will fall over in judgment. That is what Isaiah was saying and that is what's being quoted in our text. He is the stone that they will fall over. For there is no other way, brothers and sisters, under heaven by which one must be saved but by that name Jesus, by the Son of God. Paul prays to that end then for his brothers, saying his heart desires and prayer to God is that they may be saved, that they would experience what you, if you profess God, to have experienced, that is the saving grace of our Lord. But he follows that with another concern of his, another hindrance, if you will, between Israel and saving faith, and that is they had failed in their understanding of who God 
revealed himself to be. Our third concern, in chapter 10 and verses 2 through 3, Paul recognized that like he himself once were or was, they had a zeal for God. Remember, Paul was, you couldn't find anyone more zealous than uh, Paul. And they had a zeal for him, for God, but not according to knowledge. Instead, they were ignorant, that is without knowledge, of the righteousness of God. They didn't have an experiential understanding of God's attributes, the fact that he is wholly other, infinite in all his ways, and thus infinitely just. And if he is infinitely holy and infinitely just, then any offense against him, brothers and sisters, is an infinite offense. Any sin, no matter how white it might be, no matter how small you think it might be, is an infinite offense and punishable by the wages of sin, which is death. Which is death. And so, before God, none of us can stand if that is a testimony. Now consider the fact that the Bible says we were all born in sin and continue to sin throughout our lives. Who among us can take that record before an infinite and holy God? Which one of us is willing to stand before God and says, I and my own merit, I've done good. I've been good. I've done such and such. I went to Sunday school. I went to church. Which one of us is willing to stand on, on that ground? Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. Let, let not one of us even begin to entertain any such thought. But let us fall at the feet of our Lord and rely on him only as our means and source of salvation. For you see, the answer is no one. No one can stand. And because those who Paul was concerned about had missed that fact, they were ignorantly striving to establish their own merit. Now, I remember when I talked about how Paul might have uh, previously reasoned that, that God was the one who had given them the law, and, and they were right to rely on it as a means to earn merit. Well, there are some things that I could have said that would have went against that. For instance, while reasoning, Paul should have asked himself, why was it? that the high priest had to enter the Holy of Holies every single year, year after year after year, for the sins of the people? Why did the people have to provide an offering every single day, morning and in the evening? Why all these ritual and ceremonial washings? Why was the, 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 the sacrificial system so tedious and, did, may I dare say, onerous? Why? Why did Jesus just say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light in comparison to this? Could it have been because the law wasn't an end unto itself, but pointed to something or someone greater, something or someone better? What if Paul were to read the scriptures with those questions that I just posed in mind, instead of the presuppositions he previously held as those he were now addressing we're holding to. Well, guess what? By God's grace and what we know of Paul's writing in the New Testament, we can conclude that he surely did reread these texts through the grid of having his eyes open by the grace of God, which is why he was able to conclude this passage of what we see 
in verse 4, for Christ, <clears throat> for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. As we look at this concluding verse, it's important for us to understand what Paul means when he uses the word end. It's the Greek word telos, and it can mean the termination of something or a completion, or it can mean the goal of something. And here I would argue strenuously that it is the latter. Paul is saying that it is the goal. So here by context and other scripture, I'm going to say that we can now rightly state that this verse is saying that the primary goal of the law was to point one to Christ. He is the reality of what all those Old Testament sacrifices and rituals were speaking of in types and shadows. As Israel was bringing their offerings day after day, as the high priest entered the Holy of Holy year after year, as they engaged in ceremonial washings and, and cleansings and, and all the rituals, as they smelt the spilt blood of thousands of animals, as they had to observe this date and that date, a sense of, my goodness, there has to be something better. There has to be something an easier way than this. There has to be. And, and then there was this. Follow up on that. The writer of the book of Hebrews answers that very thing. Writing this. This is Hebrews chapter 9 verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing what? An eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a high heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There's a relatively new catechism produced by Tim Keller. It's called the New City Catechism. Here's how it summarizes what I just shared in very simple terms. It asks the question, since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? And the answer, that we may know the holy nature and will of God and the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts and thus our need of a savior. The law also teaches and exhorts us to live worthy of our savior. The folks that Paul was concerned about missed what you just heard. And thus they went about trying to establish their own righteousness. The problem is, as we've heard, there is no such thing for as the scripture says. There's none righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.10. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. And so, brothers and sisters, in light of what you've heard this morning, let me ask you two questions. Are you living by faith or are you 
dying by works. Have you rejected Christ as your Savior? And are you now seeking to establish your own way? You know, I've come to realize that I, I said two questions, but it's actually three. But <laughs> you don't mind. And the third question is, are you standing on a firm foundation? Or are you stumbling over one? In Luke 18, a certain rich young ruler proclaimed and probably genuinely thought he was fulfilling every jot and tittle of the law. But when Jesus asked him to give away his wealth and follow him, it became clear that his faith in himself and his conduct was faulty at best. Likewise, all of us are blind to the depths of our own waywardness, and all of us are desperately in need of the gospel, and not just to be saved, but to continue living. And so I end my exhortation to you this morning by quoting the writer of Hebrews as he quotes the writer of Psalm 97. Today, if you hear his voice, that is the voice calling to you to place your faith in the living Christ and not in your own works. 4,000 religions in the world existing today. All of them say that you have to win or gain merit to have favor before their deity. Only one of them said that our Lord, that a Lord, that the Lord was stretched out wide and had all the sins of the world laid upon him because you couldn't accomplish what he did, you and I. And so let us not call the Lord's name in vain or hold him in vain. For why would a good God send his son to earth to die that sort of death if it was possible for us to earn our ticket? No, I tell you, he sent him because none of us can do it on our own and are desperately in need of his saving grace. They missed it. And I'm not picking on Jews because people today are missing it. Paul just happens to be speaking to this audience. But if you again are here trying to gain entry into heaven, buy your bootstraps. You know, I know this song, it says, I'm coming up on the rough side of the mountain. I'm trying my best to make it in. Every time I hear that song and someone's singing it, I want to like slap them, but then I say Christians shouldn't slap people like that. <laughs> Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. You sent your only begotten son, whom you love so much. Why? Because each and every one of us deserve hell. None of us deserve to know you or to be reconciled with you. All of us were born in sin. But you and your love has revealed yourself to us. You've grabbed hold of our hearts and you've made us your own. Father, I pray if there's any among us now who are not professing the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I ask that you would extend the same mercies that you extended to me and those among us who are called by your name, would you please extend your mercies towards them this day? Give them the unction to be able to see our risen Lord. Give them the heart to have a zeal not for the things that they can do, 
but a zeal for what God has already done in and through our Savior. Would you cause all of us to walk in new obedience as we recognize these truths and do so all to the praise of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.